the last few weeks, we've been in the story of Joseph. And uh, as was mentioned in the announcements, you can catch up on the podcast. I don't do that for self-promotion purposes, but because Joseph, this is an ongoing story. And in order to kind of be up to speed, especially if you haven't read this, if you haven't read the book of Genesis, um, you need to kind of get caught up on the story. And so you can hear this talk, you can hear multiple talks going back on our podcast, which you can find online at wovenchurch.org. I encourage you to listen because this is a story that's unfolding. It's unfolding, the Joseph story. Now you might wonder why we call this series Hashtag Beginnings. And that's because it's the book of Genesis. I was visiting with Ryan and Sue um, when I, I got to meet their baby, another beautiful woven baby. Um, his name is Noah. And I said, well, how would you like it if after we finish the Joseph story, we do the Noah story? And we're still in the book of Genesis. And they said they'd, they'd love it. And they're like, we'll be back at church soon. I'm like, take your time. Just had a baby. Um, but um, the reason we're calling this beginnings is because this is the beginning of everything. Genesis is the beginning of creation. It's the first couple. It's the first marriage. It's the first sibling rivalry. It's the first murder. It's the first family drama. It's the first telenovela. And it's the first immigrant story. And so in the story of Joseph, and if you can pull up that graphic behind me, um, in the story of Joseph, we have this, this family, the beginning of the nation of Israel. There's another beginning, the first nation of Israel. And um, it really starts off when Joseph, one pioneer, immigrates to Egypt. Um, I don't know if you'd call this an immigration per se. Maybe it's a forced deportation. You know, there's a little bit of that going on these days. Um, and it's against his will, but it starts this beginning of this immigration pattern for his family, which incidentally, um, I think it happens for many families, for many families. For example, 1975, my father immigrated uh, from South Korea to New York in 1975. He was alone. It was just him and this woman, who was my mother, and then we came along, but after that, um, the two of them, they were alone, but then, you know, it's like cell mitosis. You know, you start clustering, right? Or grapes start clustering. Uh, my father's brothers began to immigrate and followed him, and then the last stage was my father's parents. My grandparents came. There's a similar pattern happening here in the scripture. If you can see behind me, um, we're getting close to the center. And next week, we're going to get right to the heart, to the climax of the story. But you see the letter F, chapter 42, the journeys of brothers, of the brothers to Egypt. This is the first, pro the first stage of immigration. After Joseph, this is the first stage. Um, Korean people... Um, you know, they were immigrating. They brought everything on camels and caravans. Korean people, we have something that we call imin kabang, which imin is immigration. Kabang means bag. And there were these giant bags that you could squish them down. And some of us might still have it in our closets. 
you know, after 20 years, and then you extend it, and there are these huge bags that you put all of your life possessions in so you could immigrate to the new world. And so what's happening here is all of the brothers pack their imin kabangs, and then they move out of uh, where they are, uh, out of where they are, and they move into Egypt um, looking for food. This is the first stage of migration or immigration. But there's a second stage. And we see after the brothers meet with Joseph in chapters 44 and 45, and then they kind of clear the air a little bit, then it's set in F, F prime, for the father. So there's this repeating pattern. I, I've been talking about this repeating pattern for the last many weeks, that it gets to this climax, but then you see everything happen in reverse. So basically, these stages of immigration, and that's going to be the course of our talk today. Three stages of immigration. It starts with a pioneer, Joseph, the first immigrant. And then after that is Judah, representing all the brothers that immigrate. And then finally, it's the, the parents. Jacob, father, immigrates to, Houston, to, to uh, Egypt. So Joseph, Judah, and Jacob. Um, uh, I, we had community group at my house yesterday, and it was a really great time, really, really great time. And I got to hear a little bit of, of Aloino's immigration story. Um, uh, I, not a permanent immigration yet. Um, hopefully, it will become so. And, but how when he first came to America as a student, um, as a young African man, 17 years old, I'm, I'm telling a story here, huh? but the, the experience of being all alone in a new land, and, and how do you survive? And there's a tendency to kind of cluster with people like you. So Joseph is the first pioneer immigrant, alone, a stranger in a strange land. And what we see in Genesis chapter 41 is it was such a painful move for Joseph that after a while he finally took an Egyptian wife and he had two sons. He gave them Egyptian names and he said, I've basically left my past behind. I've moved on. My Swedish ancestry or my Korean American identity or my African identity or whatever I've moved away, and now I'm American. Or in Joseph's case, I'm Egyptian. I mean, pretty much. And this is what happens to the Jews in exile. They take on uh, Babylonian names or Egyptian names. And then they marry um, with, the, with the locals. And then they have children, and they give them names like Austin and Zoe, good Korean names. And, and, then, and that's what he does. He names his kids... Uh, you know, good Egyptian names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh meaning God has made me forget. Forget what? My past life. I've moved on. I've left Africa. I've left New York. I've left Sweden. I've left Asia. I've left South America. And so I'm going to become completely acculturated. God has made me forget my past and the troubles of my father's household. That's what Manasseh means. God made me forget. But then his second son, Ephraim. If Manasseh means God made me forget, Ephraim means God has made me fruitful. So not only has God made me forget the old land, but in this new land, God has given me prosperity. 
everything is good. I can move on, the end. Except, except, hey Christian, except his past comes knocking at his door. And here's the thing, we're never prepared for that. We're never prepared. Family says, oh, we just happen to be in Texas. We're driving through. <laughs> Can we come over? Well, I, I wasn't prepared. And so with, with very little, no, in fact, no preparation, no expectation, we see Joseph moved on. But lo and behold, quite literally, his brothers come knocking at his door. And they don't recognize. They don't recognize him. Now, let me do some Bible study with you. Let's do some Bible study. When you're reading this story, and as you read this story, I'd like for you to underline that word. I'm going to give you the answer key now. Underline the word recognize. Or where, where, wherever you see that this word uh, recognize or acknowledge this sense of, oh, like, I, I, I see. And there's a Hebrew word there. A Hebrew word, and this is an ongoing theme, the ability to see, to, to recognize. The thing is, the brothers don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. So you get this sense that somebody who's endowed with God's wisdom, God's insight, he can see. After all these years, he still recognizes his brothers. And Joseph, this is the first heading, this is the first pioneer immigrant, Joseph really struggles with this, and he's thinking, the guest room's not ready. Um, I really, the last time I saw my brothers, it didn't really end well. How are you doing? Oh, well, welcome. Not really. Actually, it says in, in Genesis 42, verse 7, when he first saw them, he spoke to them harshly. Harshly. Doesn't it feel good? I mean, there's something, it's like, you know, I grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard and Knight Rider. And the reason I love that was because the, at the end of every episode, the bad guys got punched out. They got their comeuppance. And there's something gratifying about that, that is, doesn't it feel good that here are the brothers and they're all on their hands and their feet, feet saying, please give us food. There's a famine in the land. Nobody has food. Oh, Lord, could you give us food? And Joseph, you know, it's like, you know, he can, he can get his revenge. And then we see all of this drama where Joseph, he says, you, 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 have a new, you have a youngest brother. I'd like you to bring your youngest brother up here to Egypt next time you come back. And he does this crazy thing. He puts them in prison. He lets them go. He goes back to the room. He cries a little bit. He weeps. He comes back. He ties the brothers up. And basically we see, I think, um, a lot of this, not only is Joseph not prepared, but we see a lot of emotional turmoil. Emotional turmoil. And I want to say this. This is important because in many teachings and in many writings on the story of Joseph, Joseph is held up as the paradigm of forgiveness. If you have a resentment against your boss or against your sister or against your mother-in-law, this is how you forgive. Read the story of Joseph, and you'll get all the answers. The thing is, when I read the story of Joseph, I don't find many answers, but I find a lot of, I find a lot of like the end of Dukes of Hazard. I find a lot of revenge. I'm not sure if Joseph is a model for us to follow. 
Um, one commentator says that the motives and the actions of Joseph, they're not really patterns to be copied. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to get a drink here. And so we think that if I'm struggling with forgiveness, where should I turn to in the Bible? The story of Joseph. And if I just copy what Joseph did, then I'll learn how to forgive. But good luck with that. If you want to do it the Joseph way, then you're going to have to speak harshly. You're going to have to throw them in prison. In other words, this whole process, I don't think there is much stability. I think Joseph is baffled. And this is so interesting to me because everything up to this point, everything up to this point, Joseph has the answers. Pharaoh is in his palace, and everybody comes up to Pharaoh and say, oh, what should we do? What should I, I, Pharaoh says, I don't know, I don't know. Ask Joseph. Joseph knows what he's doing. He knows how to rule. He knows how to lead. He knows governance. He understands. And so everybody goes to Joseph. Lord Joseph, what do we do? Joseph has an answer for everything. God's wisdom is on Joseph. Joseph leads well. Joseph is a, a good um, uh, uh, politician. Joseph interprets. He has spiritual insight. Joseph has an answer for everything except his family. And it's ironic because for the first time in this whole story, Joseph is like, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do. Everything up to this moment, Joseph, decisive, he speaks to Pharaoh. He knows exactly this is what we should do. This is the right thing to do. And everybody listens and it goes well. But for the first time, Joseph is just completely baffled. He doesn't know what to do. And I think next week when we wrap up the Joseph story with the climax, um, I, I want to make the case that, no, you can't copy Joseph because Joseph can't forgive. Joseph is trying, but he's going back and forth. He's baffled. He doesn't know how to fix his family. We might be able to be the captain of our industry, and yet how often do you hear that, you know, case in point, Jeff Bezos, right? Billion, billions of dollars empire, and yet, you know, ends up divorced, and how much of that fortune ends up going, you know. Everything looks great except the family. And I think what we see in Joseph is that this is a real um, struggle to forgive. In fact, I don't know if Joseph can forgive. The great lesson that I want to teach next week and that I'm even learning in my life is that when it comes to matters of forgiveness, oftentimes it's not... Eh, it's, it, it might not be in our power. Um, it's kind of like, you know, no matter what, don't think about that stupid guy. 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 And, you know, you, you, what are you thinking about? It's the only thing we can't, you know, for, I got to forgive that jerk. 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 And the thing is, the only thing we're thinking about is that jerk. And the irony is, like, forgiveness is this thing that, the more we hold on to it, the, the, the slipper, it's, it's not something we possess in our grasp. Really, I believe forgiveness is about living in an ecosystem of grace. An ecosystem of grace. And what I mean by this ecosystem of grace is that you might not have it in you today to forgive him or her. But in the meantime, somebody else is forgiving you. And in the meantime, this relationship is being repaired. 
And as you're working on this, it's triggering the other ecosystems of grace. That sometimes if you're thinking about that jerk, that jerk, you're not going to get it. It's not going to get repaired. But in the meantime, other relationships are, are growing. You're working on other areas of your life. And the next thing you know, that person winds up on your doorstep. And God is giving you the grace to forgive. If you find that in a relationship, you're hitting up against a repeated wall. And you keep, like, I want to speak Korean today. You keep dodging each other. You keep, you keep like, 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 irritating one another. You keep getting up against each other. And you're like, why can't I improve this relationship? But the ecosystem of grace, it shows us that it's not just one relationship, but there are many. It's a system and a web of many relationships. And as God works on you in this area, this area starts to function. And if God works on you in this area, this area begins to, I run. I like to, I run. And I've been finding that my hip and... <clears throat> my knee has been um, uh, acting up, that it feels more stiff lately. And so you think, I just need to kind of you know, stretch my knee out more. I've come to the conclusion that the reason this side of my leg is uncomfortable when I run is because I have this thing on my le left arm. I have a weight. I have my phone, my, you know, one of those arm things. Where you, you just... And I think that is actually causing something to be a little bit off in my balance. The ecosystem of grace shows us that it's sometimes just tackling the problem head on is not going to work. We need to be enabled. And what we're going to see next week is that Joseph needs to be enabled to forgive in a powerful way. And the thing is, it's not just Joseph that God is working on. In this meantime, God has been working on the brothers as well. And this leads us to the second group, the brothers, or Judah. The second heading is Judah. And what we see is that in all of this past time, you have the youngest brother who starts out low, but God raises the youngest up. I've noticed this a lot. And then you have somebody who's born with a silver spoon in their mouth or is the oldest sibling, and then they live the rest of their life kind of like lowered. That's kind of, I feel like that's been my experience, that the oldest ends up being humbled throughout their life, but the youngest oftentimes is lifted up. This is, this is in the Bible. This is the story of, of Jacob, Joseph, you know, David, that the youngest and the weakest get lifted up. And so we see this as Joseph, God blesses Joseph's life and he becomes prosperous. God is also blessing Judah, but in a different way. Judah doesn't become prosperous like his brother. He doesn't become famous, but Judah goes deep. Judah is, he, he, he gets healed in a deep way. And I think we see this when we look, and listen to the word of the Lord in Genesis chapter 43, verses 8 to 9. And I say, listen to the word of the Lord, because you hear Judah saying this, but you can also picture Christ saying these same words. You can also picture Jesus. Listen to the word of the Lord in Genesis 43, verse 8. Judah said to his father Jacob, Send the lad Benjamin with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him 
If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. This is the word of the Lord. These are incredible words. The first thing Judah says is send the lad with me. What is he talking about? Well, the, uh, the brothers, they got their food and they went back home. In the meantime, Simeon is in jail up in, down in Egypt. And the brothers are thinking, my goodness, you know, who was that guy? He was weird. He was scary. He gave us food and he gave us our money back. What is God doing? In the meantime, we're eating and the food is gone. What do we do now? We have to go back. But that prince of Egypt said, don't come back unless you bring your youngest brother, Benjamin. Now you see, God is working on Joseph. God is working on Judah. God is working on Jacob, the father as well. And all three of them, God's working on them. Three generations, actually two generations, right? But, you know, three people, three, 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 three persons. God works on them, and even Jacob still is growing up. Because at the end, we see Jacob still favoritizing the youngest. Favoritism, we talked about this. How much of a problem favoritism is in a family system. And Jacob says, no, not my baby Benjamin. And so Judah has to pry his father's fingers open. He has to do God's work in his father's heart for some reason. You know, his father is still maturing. So Judah has to bear this responsibility. So Judah says, okay, Dad, listen. You understand that if you don't let Benjamin go, we're all pretty much dead. Even Benjamin's dead, too. We're going to die of starvation. So if you want Benjamin to die, then definitely don't send him. In other words, Judah starts talking about life, which is really remarkable because the last time I saw Judah, he was sitting in between the cracks of his couch with a bag of Ruffles potato chips Cheddar, harvest cheddar flavor, so good. The jumbo size from Costco, and he had his supersized beverage here, and he was sitting, I don't care about life. And he was playing Xbox a little bit, or was watching, and he kind of slipped into the cracks. And Judah was just, you know, checked out, let alone living. He was not interested in life. But all of a sudden, something jump starts. Something jump starts, and he says, we have to live. We can't die. Not only, not only you, Dad, but the little ones. So somewhere between chapter 37 and chapter 42, Judah has a birth of responsibility. A birth of responsibility. I have to care for Dad, and I have to care for the little ones. The birth of responsibility. But not only that, listen to this in verse 9. Judah says, okay, here's what, here's what we'll do. If, 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 if something happens to Benjamin, I myself will be surety for him. Now you can picture Benjamin, maybe 17 years old here, kind of like Joseph, scared, terrified. I don't want to go to Egypt. But they, they say, I have to go. Judah, what are we going to do? Judah, what are we going to do? And what if Judah said, like he said to Joseph all those years, oh, let's sell him into slavery. He's just a runt of the litter. We'll just kind of, you know, let's, let's make a profit out of it. But the little brother, Benjamin, looks at Judah and he says, what, what are we going to do, big brother? And Judah says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I will be surety for you. 
I will swap my life for your life. Now, first of all, who talks like that? Christ. We see a model of Christ in Judah. Judah is very special in the Bible, friends. There's a reason why this is not just the story of Joseph. Next week, you're going to see this is also the story of Judah's salvation. Judah is very special. He's special for Jews because King David would come from him. But he's special for us because Jesus would come from him. We have in Judah a model for Jesus. I will trade places with you, my life for your life. Don't worry, little brother. I got your back. These are incredible words for somebody who just a few chapters ago didn't care about his daughter-in-law, didn't care about his grandkids, didn't care about his brother. Just give me that Xbox controller back and my harvest cheddar Ruffles potato chips. Just going to disappear into the folds of the couch. Of course, and you have to listen to the podcast for this. In Genesis 38, Judah does have an awakening. He does have an awakening. It's at the hands of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Do you remember that story? I mean, what a story. What a story. Um, she ends up bearing his child, and he's so mad. In ancient society, you know, men could do terrible things to women. But he can't do anything to her. You know why? She's carrying his baby. Not only that, he realizes and he says this word, she is more righteous than I. You have two words here in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 38. The first is Judah recognized. Do you remember I said underline the word recognized? He saw, his eyes were open for the first time in his life. It's like, Judah, do you get this? Do you see this pattern in your life? No, I don't see it. I don't know what you're talking about. No, do you see this pattern? Finally, his daughter in life says, Father, do you get this or do you not get this? Are you awake or are you asleep? She shakes him awake and he finally, he says, I recognize, I see. What does he see? He sees that he's not righteous. He's not righteous. Friends, what we're unpacking here, recognize and righteousness, both Hebrew words, to recognize and to see righteousness or lack of righteousness, these two Hebrew words, this is the science of salvation. Christian salvation begins with, a, like, uh, I, have you ever smelled smelling salts? You've never been knocked out in your Taekwondo career, that's probably why. Um, smelling salts. I've never had, I've never smelled smelling salts. It's, it's a boxing thing. Like if you see like, you know, a boxer and he's all cut up and he's in the corner and then they bring the smelling salts, you think, whoa, he wakes up. But the smelling salts, the gospel, the recognition when in my stupor, in my sleep, I wake up. When I'm checked out and I'd rather die, it brings life. I wake up. The recognition is the first stage of salvation. But the second stage of salvation is the recognition of what? I need more chips. I need to refill my drink. No, it's the recognition. Actually, I'm not righteous. I'm not righteous. I'm not. I'm not who everybody says I am. <clears throat> There's a story of... Um, my, my wife these days, she's gotten, she's gotten into some summer reading. She's been reading a lot about 
um, she, my wife likes to read books about women, and she started reading about um, uh, African-American uh, sociology and women, and then she started reading about um, World War II, the zookeeper's wife, and then the next thing you know, she's talking about Schindler's List, right? I'm going to tie this in, just hang with me. And the story of Schindler's List, so I got reacquainted with this story. Oskar Schindler was a businessman in Germany. Um, and World War II comes around, and his factory literally saved over a thousand Jews from the concentration camp. He needed workers, and so from the ghetto, uh, from uh, the people who were going to be shipped to the concentration camps, he employed those Jews in his factory, effectively saving their lives, over a thousand Jews. And my wife and I are having this conversation about um, how what a hero, what a great man Oskar Schindler was. He was buried on Mount Zion by, 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 the, uh, by the Jews who survived him. And uh, he's known as this great hero. But there's this powerful scene in the movie. There's this powerful moment when you really realize that Oskar Schindler actually is not all that righteous. He was actually a member of the Nazi party. And the reason he saved the Jews was because it helped his bottom line. It was good for business. And in the end, really, he did it because he needed laborers for his factory. And there's this moment where all the Jews come to him and they say, thank you. You are righteous amongst the nations. You saved us. And he gets angry and he barks at them and he says, I'm not righteous. I'm really just doing this because it's for my own self-interest. I'm not righteous. I'm not. Stop calling me that. I'm just a businessman feeding the military-industrial complex. Well, by the end, he gets righteous real quick because we see as the war winds down, in order to keep his people alive, his tribe alive, in order for Judah to keep his very loved ones alive, Oscar Schindler ends up giving his entire fortune away to bribes just so that they would not execute his thousand workers. The birth of responsibility came when he said, I'm not righteous. Stop calling me a hero. Stop calling me all those good things. Deep down inside, I know my motives. Judah has this aha moment with Tamar. There's nothing special about me. In fact, I was lazy. I neglected my daughter-in-law. And in the end, I sold my brother to slavery. There's nothing righteous. But please, let me protect the little ones. Let me protect my family. Dad, let me protect you. And in the end, I'll trade my life for Benjamin if it comes down to it. Where's Larry and Esther? This is the Benji series. I'll trade my life for Benjamin. This is interesting. I just realized that Benjamin, Noah, lots of Genesis, Old Testament names here. Nathan. <laughs> Judah has an awakening. And I think what this shows us, and even Joseph is going to be surprised next week. Even Joseph, I'm going to kill these guys. All those years ago, pff, and then he sees Judah. What happened to Judah? All these years, he changed. Reuben, Simeon, they're not that much different, but Ru Judah, he's different. What happened to you? 
well, what happened to you? You're different. You're different. Well, what happened to Judah was salvation. Salvation. He recognized and he recognized righteousness. He knew he was not righteous, but he saw righteousness when he saw it. You know, um, friends, in all of our relationships, whether they're brother, sister, husband, wife, mother, father, in-laws, children. I mean, I know your stories. I know many of your stories. You've shared them with me. I know your struggles. I mean, I wish God would work on him. I wish God would work on her. I wish God would work on them. But in the meantime, God's working on me. And God will work on them too. Don't worry about it. God is their God too. He's working on them, but he's also working on me. Next week, just going to have to hold on to next week to see how this blossoms. It's a story that I've read and stained the pages of my Bible with my tears. But let's finish off with the last piece. There is one more immigrant, and it's the father. It's Jacob. So it starts off with the pioneer, Joseph, and then Joseph's brothers come, and then finally the parents. Well, his mother is passed, so Jacob. And we see that uh, in Genesis chapter 46. I'm going to read here a few verses that Jacob, the father, now immigrates to join Joseph and Judah in Egypt. Chapter 46, verse 1 So Jacob set out with all that he had. Listen to this. He came to Beersheba and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. I don't know how many of you have fathers who go, your Christian, the Christian heritage goes back generations. Some of you, many of you might actually be the first generation Christian. Simba. Just thought I'd say that. So his father Isaac, the God of his father Isaac, Jacob remembers, offers sacrifices, and God speaks to him again in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. What is it about travel? Every time Jacob travels, every time he goes through these big life changes and he's on the road, you know, on the path to meet his brother Esau, Jacob and Esau, right? Here, as he goes back to meet his son, he has these very vivid encounters with God. I mean, does that happen to any of you? Like uh, sometimes when I'm flying and I'm in the middle of a big life crisis or something, God speaks to me 30,000 feet in the air. Wayne, I think this is what you need to do. I remember even moving from New York to Seattle and that transition, God speaking in the midst of that. How many times have I cried looking out of the window of an airplane? Or even moving here. So there's these transitions, these life transitions. And God speaks to to Jacob as he travels, as he migrates. And God says in verse 3 of chapter 46, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. 
Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And so we see here in conclusion, now the father travels one last, well, one more time. He gets buried, and, and, but this is, this is one last migration. Do you remember I shared this a couple of weeks back? The father, Jacob, would spend 17 years in Egypt with his son, Joseph. And it's kind of this echoing pattern. Joseph was 17 when he went to Egypt. 17 years, Joseph was daddy's little boy. And then 17 years, Jacob was in, in the care of Joseph. And um, God meets Jacob in these travels. And um, I want... I want to pull up this, this picture. If you can just pull up that last picture, Andrew. Um, I'm a little hesitant. I was hesitant to show this picture because I don't like to make this about me. I don't want you to remember my story. I want you to remember biblical principles. But I, I just want to share this story for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm always talking about faith and work. And this is very, very pertinent because my father here, this is circa Vietnam War. And he's carrying the iPhone beta version um, 1.0, if you can see it, in his left arm. Yeah, in his left arm over there, carrying that, the first cell phone. Um, and using that, he was able to learn how to do business and telecom. And the rest is, that's my faith and work talk there. Um, but more importantly, I show this picture because this is, this is my father just before he immigrated to New York. And he picked up some skills during Vietnam and was able to use those skills, as I said, in New York. But the thing is, my dad now, 40 years later, still lives in New York, still is a member of the same church that we went to ever since the very beginning. 40 years, that's a track record. And in every family gathering, no matter how great or how small, my dad says the same exact thing over and over. And with his Korean accent, he says, I thank God. He's 80 years old. I thank God that he brought me to New York, to America, because if he didn't bring me here, I would never be a Christian. He was the first immigrant, and then his brothers came, brothers and sisters, all seven of them, six of them, and then with their family. So... What started in 1975 with one man and one woman alone in New York, like Joseph, ended up becoming now today like 75 people. They're like the Korean mafia in New York. So don't cross me. I'm a connected man. And, but my dad said, you know, he's the patriarch and they gather and, and you know, when we, we get together, my dad says the same thing. He's like, I know what he's going to say. Thank you, God, bring me to America. Didn't come to America, I wouldn't be a Christian. I wouldn't be a Christian. And I think this connection with immigration and migration and God, I think is very, very important. Whatever you believe about immigration today, secure borders, I, I think it's possible. Let me just make a mild political statement here. If we want to talk about secure borders, I think it's possible to talk about safe borders. I mean, having safe boundaries, this is important for every organization. I mean, uh, physiological health is about um, cell boundaries and cell borders and health, you know, healthy body means healthy borders. 
But the thing is, I think we can also talk about migration. We can also talk about valuing immigrants. That in this day and age and in this nation, okay, we can talk about healthy borders, but we can also talk about valuing people who bring different cultures and different heritages. We can talk about healthy boundaries, but we can also talk about the Christian impact that immigrants bring to this nation. My goodness, I wish Republicans would get this, that what you have in immigrants, newly immigrated, are strong social values that are good for the nation. Because God meets people like immigrants in the journey so that they say things like, thank God, bring me to America. I, 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 I wouldn't be a Christian if I weren't here. Because there's a sobriety, a soberness that happens when you move around and you start fresh. I know what it's like to start fresh. I'm not an immigrant, but in some ways, when I came to Houston, I, you know what I said? This is my chance to start new, and I'm not going to mess up this time. Because if I'm honest, I messed up. I made a lot of mistakes in other places that I've lived. And I've endeavored here in Houston to live with a clean slate and to start fresh and to be upright, to live well. That's the mentality of every immigrant. This is my chance New life, I'm going to do it well. Keep my head down, work hard, live ethically and honestly, love and care for the little ones as well as pop and mom. This is the foundation of society. We can talk about preserving the family, restoring conservative values and everything, but in the end, you have that motivation already inbuilt into immigrants because we want to start fresh. We want to do well in this nation. We want to... Thank God for making us Christians. So friends, you can, you, can, you, you can move that picture off the screen because in the end, I don't want you to copy my story. Believe me, you don't want to copy my story. Don't want to copy my story. Because it was not fun. It was not easy. You don't want to copy, and, and you know what else? You don't want to copy Joseph's story either. Who wants to go through that? Well, first thing you need to do is get sold into slavery. Second thing you need to do is, you know, just have this crazy back and forth. It's not a pattern to be copied. So no, 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 don't copy me. Don't copy Joseph, but you can copy this. There are three biblical principles, I think, that we can see in conclusion. What can we learn from this family reunion? Number one, you can count on the past coming back to haunt you. That's the first biblical principle. You can count on the past to come knocking on your door. Even if you say, like Joseph, Manasseh, I, I've, God has caused me to forget the past. I've completely embraced this new life. You can count on the past to come knocking at your door. It will come knocking in one form or another. That's the first biblical principle. Second biblical principle, God is actually their God too. God is their God too. Well, God's been working on my heart. Well, has God been working on yours? Has God been working on yours? We see that just like God's working on Joseph, he's working on Judah as well. But the third thing we see is that God is in the journey. In Genesis, we see this constantly. In the relocations, in the migrations, 
God's in it. God's in it.